as I turn my microphone on. Um, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we ended uh, the last time I, I was up here, Colossians 3. And even though I didn't plan it as such, I guess this is somewhat of a continuation uh, of, of that discussion. Um, we talked about uh, last week uh, the gifts that God has given us according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That both being married and being unmarried is a gift uh, from God. God is the designer of a family. And within the family, in His wisdom, God has determined roles that serve the, the whole of, of the family. Uh, there are many different places we could go to show this. But for this lesson, I want to primarily stay in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, beginning of verse 18, it kind of lays out some of these roles. Read with me. Colossians 3, beginning of verse 18. It says, Wives, be subject to husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so that they will not lose heart. Part of the beauty of this design, uh, a husband, wife, children, is that the message of God would be reflected uh, in that role. The message of God uh, would be reflected in that relationship that we have with the other roles, right? And it, it would also be passed down within the family. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, we looked at 1 Peter 3, and what's, what's so great about both of those passages as it pertains to the husband and as it pertains to the wife is that in both passages, Christ serves as the example for both roles. The husband gives himself up for the wife in order to sanctify her, in the same way that Christ gave himself up for the church. A wife wins over her husband without a word, but with respectful behavior, in the same way Jesus, just a few verses before at the end uh, of 1 Peter chapter 2, in the same way Jesus opened not his mouth. And what happens at the end of that is that He redeems all of us. He brings all of us to, to Him. Jesus serves as the example in both of those roles. And then we talked about a little bit, more in passing than anything else, of how parents ought to be passing down the message of God, and passing down the gospel to their children. That uh, Parents everywhere should see themselves as evangelists of some kind, trying to teach uh, their children. Well, in order for that passing down to truly take effect... Um, the child's role has to, has to be done, right? The child's role being, being obedient to his or her parents. And there's a lot of different passages in addition to Colossians 3 that really stress the importance of this. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, right? The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. Proverbs, throughout uh, the book, addresses a father to the son and talks about the importance of heeding the wisdom of the parents. Ephesians 6 is a mirror passage here in Colossians chapter 3, and there's a lot of others we could go to. And even in this relationship, in this role, the role of a child, Jesus serves as the example. You can go throughout the Gospel of John, and you can see, uh, it seems as though John's Gospel stresses this more than the others, of just how much Jesus submitted to the Father. Jesus was obedient to what God told him to do, and in every respect, he was obedient. And while children have their roles uh, of obedience, parents, specifically fathers in this passage, if you saw that in chapter 3 and verse 21, they have a role as well, and that is to teach their children, to raise them up, but to do it in a way that does not exasperate their, their children. I want to explore this topic uh, this morning or this evening. How do we exasperate our children? Fathers specifically, how do we exasperate our children, causing them to lose heart? Well, 
I'm going to guess you haven't really used the word exasperate uh, this, this week. Maybe you have. If you're Bob, you probably have. But others of us, we probably don't use words along those lines. In other versions, your versions might read provoke, uh, perhaps. Provoke is certainly a word we're a little bit more familiar with. Um, as I was seeking to define this word, my first instinct was to go over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Again, a mirror passage. passage. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Until I found out that that word, provoke to anger, uh, is actually one word in Greek, and it's not the same word that's found here in Colossians 3. It's two different words. The word here in Colossians 3 literally means to, to stir up, and it doesn't really have any connotation. It's not negative, it's not positive, uh, it's not associated with anger as the word in Ephesians 6 is. Actually, it's used in other places in the Bible to actually have a more positive connotation. But the reason why, I believe, we get the, the more negative-sounding English word to provoke or exasperate is because of what is said at the end of verse 21, which is to cause your children to lose heart. So what does that mean? What does it mean to lose heart? Well, what would it mean to cause your children to lose heart? Well, that word literally means uh, to be spiritless, to be without spirit, as if you have been broken in spirit. You have been disheartened, some versions render it. You've been embittered to some degree. This word is actually only used one other time in the Bible, and it's actually used in the Old Testament, Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 6. You can turn there if you like. 1 Samuel 1 and verse 6. That's the only other time this word is used, and it's used in a totally different context. Not having anything to do with parenting or child or anything like that. I guess it has to do with the child, because you have Hannah. Hannah is without child. And it says there in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 6, it says that her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord has closed her womb. I think this gives us a pretty good visual as to what this exasperate, or causing them to lose heart, means. Because Hannah's rival here, uh, Panina, would irritate her to the point of bitterness. Now, the text doesn't say what she said or what she did or anything like that, but what it does do, it shows you in the next verse, in verse 7, that this rival would do it year after year, over and over, constantly poking and prodding her to the point of weeping and to the point where she didn't even want to eat anymore. Does that sound like bitterness to you? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good visual. Now, imagine that type of behavior not coming from a rival, but from a father. And imagine that type of behavior not just happening a few years, but happening for 18 years. Think about how embittered a child might be in those circumstances. Perhaps the most concise way to render this verse, Colossians 3 and verse 21, would be, Fathers, do not embitter your children. Or fathers, do not stir up bitterness within your children. Now this bitterness, I think, can take different forms. This broken spirit can reveal itself in, in, in different ways. Um, my, my first thought when reading this verse would lend itself more to like maybe never coming to the Lord. Or maybe following, uh, falling away at some point. I'm sure that might be uh, one way in which it's, it's shown. Anger might be another, like the Ephesians 6 passage shows. But perhaps just emotional instability, 
rebelliousness, despondent behavior, never taking anything seriously or laziness. It's not necessarily that they're not Christians anymore, but these are things that they struggle with day by day. I believe all of these can be outward signs of inward bitterness and exhaustion. Is that what we're provoking in our children? Well, I want to say, before we really jump into this lesson, I want to make sure this is, this is clear. Is that God created children with free will. Children can decide what they want to do. That's a really difficult thing. The parable of the sower talks about trials, tribulations, and cares of the world. Just different things we're interested in as being things that dry up or choke out the seed. We certainly play a huge role in the growth and development of our children, but ultimately, look, they make decisions. And you know what? We are not the only influences on our children, nor should we be. We're certainly the most important influence that God has given to the children, but at the same time, there are going to be other things that are going to play a part in their life. We teach them how to live in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus prayed for his disciples. So how do we do this? How do we embitter our children? How, how do we cause these things to, to happen? Well, to answer this question, I want to look at the verses uh, within Colossians 3. And actually, a little bit before Colossians 3, even though the context is, is, is different, it's not necessarily about parenting, even though the topics are different, I think what we see is a list of what to do and what not to do as far as this topic is concerned. But I'll say, in preparation for this lesson, I called a lot of different people um, for, for some advice on this. Um, th there's a lot of different people I talked to. One, one is a, a Christian who lives up in Connecticut. Uh, he has his doctorate uh, in child psychology. I thought that might be a pretty good resource. A few friends of mine who have their master's in social work. They work in different schools within the Atlanta area. Pretty good resources there. I talked to a former elder, and then I talked to, well, just a preacher. But all of them uh, were, were extremely helpful in this. And I got many similar responses, even though all of these people have these different backgrounds and are kind of approaching this from different angles, a lot of similar responses. And what was even more fascinating to me is just how much these responses lined up with what we're going to read in Colossians chapter 3. So what I'll have on the board is a, is a quote from the verse and then directly beneath that some of the, 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 the points that I received from these people that I talked to. So let's look at Colossians chapter 3. How do we embitter our children? Well, look at verse 8 with me. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Perhaps the most obvious thing you might be thinking of is how we embitter our children or provoke this type of bitterness within our children is through anger and wrath. Parenting out of emotional reactions. Unless, unless corrected by, by others, uh, there are two different ways a child might go. Uh, as I've observed it, and as I've talked with others who have observed these things over longer periods of time, there's two different ways a child can go when constantly treated with anger and wrath from their parents. And it's pretty much just continuing that cycle of anger and wrath we're living in, in, in constant fear. If our children, no matter the age, are constantly on the receiving end of emotional reactions from our parents, we might be stirring up bitterness in our children. And another one you see in the second half of that verse is through malice, 
slander, and abusive speech, the New American Standard says. I think you can call this just this harsh, hypercritical language. Look, I understand Proverbs 22 and verse 4 says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And so you know what you're going to see often from young children is a lot of foolish deeds, a lot of foolishness from them. I understand that's the case. However, if the only words that come out of our mouths are words of correction, we might be embittering our children to some degree. Hebrews 12 is often used in connection with parenting because, after all, that, uh, it, it's a passage that talks about how a father disciplines their child. And that is a good passage to go to. Hebrews 12 and verse 11 says that discipline is not joyful in the moment. However, that doesn't mean that anything that is not joyful to a child is fair game, so long as it's vaguely under the umbrella of, of, of discipline. No, there's a limit to that. If we are being hypercritical with every little thing, we might be embittering our children and crossing over that line. And I think we can do this when we, when we set unfair or, or unrealistic expectations for our children as well. Maybe we expect a child to be, to be more like that child over there. Or we expect that child to be more like their older sibling. Or we expect that child to be more like we were when we were kids. Or we want their interests to be our interests. And then when they fail in this, we respond with inappropriate demands or harsh, critical language. We have to be observant of this in the way we talk uh, with our children. But what's interesting is that we get kind of a, a correction to this behavior in Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 12 with me. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Rather than speaking in anger, wrath, and malice, uh, slander, and abusive speech, we ought to speak in this way. Look at verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. We are still to correct. We ought to correct where it is needed. But we do it with gentleness and patience, rather than out of emotional Reactions, as the text says. This doesn't, mean, this doesn't mean we can't be swift or stern in our correction, but our motivator, what we are driven by, is training our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, not by our emotional reactions. Nor does this mean that we, we just start letting bad behavior slide, because that's not patience, that's just negligence. And actually, in my own experience as a, as a parent, the times where I have this, these emotional outbursts are usually when I have let things pile up and I've let that behavior slide over and over and over to the point where I just can't take it anymore and then I, I show some sort of emotional reaction. No, had I just addressed the behavior at the beginning with gentleness and patience, then I would have controlled myself and that thing never would have happened. And as we evaluate these situations... We can't equate every wrongdoing with some sort of act of rebellion. We must distinguish between a chi childlike foolishness and defiance and rebellion. Now, both are wrong. Both are in need of correction, but they must be addressed appropriately. Gentleness and patience would be more aptly applied to foolishness rather than 
rebellion. That's at least what we see God doing with his people. That's what we see Paul encouraging Timothy to do. There are places in uh, specifically 2 Timothy 2 where Paul is instructing Timothy, look, this person that is caught up in sin, entrapped in the snare of the evil one, you, you treat them with gentleness and patience. But right before that, he's talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and he says, no, no, no you're not treating them with that, that type of patience. There's a, there's a different response to rebellious behavior and childlike foolishness. Again, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, so we still correct, but we do it with compassion, kindness, and humility. We have to avoid abusive language, name-calling, embarrassment when addressing our children, even if that's the environment that you were raised in, or all the other people around you are raised in, or that's what everyone else is doing. That is just simply not appropriate for Christian parents to be participating in. We must instruct in an understanding way, one that displays both kindness in our words and in the way in which we speak to children. And we ought to instruct what Paul instructs. And this requires humility on our part, but look back at uh, Colossians 3 and verse 20. He says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. First of all, it puts it in more of a positive uh, phrasing, but the other part of it is it deflects from you and it puts the emphasis on God. Children, you are obeying your parents not because that's what dad really wants, but because it is well pleasing to the Lord. It deflects from the imperfect earthly father we are and puts the attention on the perfect father in heaven. And we are also called to forbear, forgive, and love. Now, your versions might read in verse 13, bearing with one another. I like the old-fashioned American Standard Version in this particular verse. Forbear gives a better uh, idea as to what we're talking about. Bearing with one another is used in other places and actually means something a little different. Forbear literally means to put up with. We're going to forbear our children. We're going to put up with our children in some ways. We must be able to distinguish between what should be corrected and what we should just put up with. Not everything a child does is wrong. Sometimes, sometimes it's just annoying. And we got to be able to distinguish between those two things and address them appropriately. And we must be willing to forgive our children, to make sure that it is clear that they have been forgiven, as well as asking them for forgiveness, showing uh, a heart that is willing to admit faults. And of course, we do this all out of Love, for there would be no unity within the family if these actions were not done in love. So when we speak to our children, we're going to speak with gentleness, patience, compassion, kindness, and humility. And we're going to actively forbear, forgive, and love. Because in this, we are reflecting the gospel. I mean, that is the gospel right there. Verses 12, 13, and 14, that summarizes the gospel pretty well. We are reflecting the gospel in the way that we treat our children. And I know that this is said not in the context of parenting. But if this is the way that we ought to treat one another in this room, how much more ought we to treat our children in this way? Now, another way, uh, another way that I believe we embitter our children can be seen back in verse 9. Look at Colossians 3 and verse 9. It simply says, Do not lie to one another. Yeah, I think, uh, simply put, one, one way that we embitter or, or exhaust our children is when we lie to them. And I think this can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. First, 
when we just fail to fulfill promises that we have made. One thing that, that, that children crave the most is consistency and stability. And it's interesting, you see, them, you see this from a very early age. You see children acting upon this desire for consistency, or at least what they think is consistent. And I'll show that in a, in a quick story. So when Millie was just learning how to walk, that's my youngest, when she was just learning how to walk, she would do this thing where she would have this big smile on her face, she'd kind of waddle over towards you, and then she would just fall face first, expecting you to catch her. No warning, nothing like that. She would just fall right in your lap. And for the most part, everyone, everyone caught her, except there was this one time, and I won't say who it was. There was one time where she waddles over to you, and she just falls face first on the living room floor. I mean, her, her whole worldview was totally shattered. What? I didn't get caught. What's going on here? Now, that, that's, a, that's a silly story, but I, I bring that up to say, imagine an adolescent or, or, or maybe someone uh, approaching their teenage years or into their teenage years. They operate under this thought of this is what life is like in this house. And maybe for some, it is pretty consistent and stable. But with every unfulfilled promise, it's like their face hitting the living room floor. With every unfulfilled promise, that, that ground gets less and less stable. And whatever circumstance we're in as, as parents, and, and some circumstances are more difficult than others more complicated than others. But in every circumstance, we must be seeking to be the most stable thing in our child's life. And you know what? For those of you who do not have children, or those of you whose children are grown up, I want you to seek to be that stable thing in some child's life. You can still be that as well. You can do all of these things that we're talking about. Seek to give consistency to our children and stability to them. I think the second thing, a uh, uh, second way in which we, we, we lie, is when we set these unfair or inconsistent standards. Because our children crave stability so much, one of the most harmful things we can do as parents is just leave them guessing as to what we expect from them. One day it's this, another day it's that. And you know what? This can be pretty difficult because this requires consistent communication between mom and dad. And that can be a pretty difficult thing because a child goes and asks mom something. She says yes, and then that child goes and does that something in front of dad. And dad's like, what are you doing? That, okay, that's hard. There's going to be times in which we fail at this. But the other thing is that we have to clearly communicate whatever the establishment is to the child. And when we change those standards, when we move the finish line up or further back, we may be stirring up bitterness within our children. When we say a child is going to be punished for something, you better do it. Again, this lends itself more to those emotional outbursts when it doesn't happen, but it's also just confusing when a child does something over and over and over, and then all of a sudden gets punished for it. Or if the opportunity calls for it, and you choose to show grace or forgiveness in that instant, then you communicate that grace or forgiveness so that standard doesn't get blurred. It's still in the same spot, but in this case, I'm showing you grace. I'm showing you Forgiveness. That requires a good amount of communication that we all need to be willing to do. And when we say a child is going to receive a reward for something, well, then we ought to do it. There's nothing more deflating than thinking you've completed something just to see the finish line get pushed farther and farther away. And third, way in which we lie and stir up bitterness within our children is just we're hypocritical. 
We don't model the behavior that we are expecting from our children. And I'll tell you what, children see straight through that do as I say, not as I do mentality. You know another thing they do? They bring that knowledge and those actions to their teachers at school as well. If we want our children to speak kindly to one another, well, how are we doing in that? Do we speak kindly to them? Do we speak kindly to our spouse? Do we speak kindly to the person who just cut us off on the road? Our children are watching. If we want our children to share, do we sacrifice our time and our resources willingly, not begrudgingly, to people we know and people we don't? If we want our children to be mentally strong, these critical thinkers, uh, people who are, who are able to overcome obstacles, do we show that type of mental toughness to our children? Do we strive to find answers to problems rather than just finding the person who agrees with us and going with that? Do we work as unto the Lord regardless of how difficult a problem is? Are we models of emotional stability to our children? If we want our children to learn, well, we must strive to be examples to them. And when we fail, because that is inevitable, well, that provides an opportunity to be an example of confession and repentance. The response to this behavior, as Paul puts it, is actually in that very verse. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its practices. We have to put away that old self. That's really what this chapter is largely about, is that we have transitioned. We are no longer like that person anymore. We are setting our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. We, we are being, as it says in uh, Colossians 3 and verse 3, that we have died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's how we correct this behavior. We see the blessing of being with Christ, and we strive for that. Well, I opened up by saying that, that God serves as the example in all of these roles. Wives, husbands, children. But He certainly serves as the example of a father. Throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, He refers to God as, as, as His Father. But what's so wonderful is that He doesn't just refer to Him as His Father. He actually says, Our Heavenly Father. He says, your Father in heaven. He is our Father in the same way, or not in the same way, but in a way that He is God, or He is Jesus' Father as well. And be, just using that term Father implies a particular relationship, an intimate relationship that He has with His children, that we can be children of God because of Him and because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the Father a good bit. Even though what's interesting is that he brings up these different points, and talking about God the Father really isn't the point of it, but it seems as though God's goodness, uh, his, his nature is just such that it can't help but shine through. Go ahead and turn over to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. As you look through the Sermon on the Mount, we see several actions of God that serve as an example of a good father. And in Matthew chapter 6, we see first that the father sees us. The father is one who, who sees us. He sees the things we do. He is aware of what we're doing. We don't have to go around seeking this, this vain recognition from other people because the God above sees what we're doing. He recognizes what it is that we are doing. And not only that, but He rewards those 
who please him. He is one who is going to reward. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 4. He says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then down in verse 6. Uh, your father sees what is done in secret and will reward you. Over in verse 18, your father sees what is done in secret and will reward you. He sees what you're doing and he will reward what it is that you are doing. He is not a father where nothing is ever good enough for him. He's one who has set a standard. Now, it's a high standard. It's a difficult standard. But if you meet it, he is willing to give he will reward those who seek Him. He delivers in that. And God is a Father who truly knows us. He knows what we need before we even ask of it. That's Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8. And what's interesting about that verse is that He says it in the context of the way that Gentiles pray to their gods. They do it with this vain repetition, right? They have to say the same thing over and over and over. they got to yell louder just to get their attention. Does that describe us? Do our children have to say the same thing over and over and over and over in order for us to finally get the picture? Do they have to yell and act out in order to get our attention? Do they have to act like a fool and make their foolishness that is bound within them become more and more apparent just to get you to look at them? Well, that's not our God in heaven. He knows us. He knows what we need before we even ask. Then over in Matthew 6 and verse 32, he knows what we need, but in verse 32, the implication seems to be that he always provides what we need. Do our children have to wonder whether they're going to get the things they need from us? And I don't, I don't necessarily mean food, drink, and clothing, as the context here suggests. But do they know without a doubt that they're going to be able to find comfort in safety in dad. That they know they're going to have stability in their home. Or at least when they come here. Where they can find answers to difficult questions or at least a humble response with their parents. Is that what we're providing for our children? Is that what you're providing with children here? And we see in Matthew 6 and verse 14 that God is a father who forgives. He is looking to forgive. He is not seeking to punish. He wants all to come to repentance so that He can forgive them. Are we actively showing forgiveness to our children? Are we audibly saying forgiveness to our children? Because I'll tell you, it's a whole lot easier to admit your faults when you know you can be forgiven for it. But wait, I mean, won't that just teach our children a lesson that, well, they can just say sorry for whatever it is that they did and get away with it? Maybe. There's certainly a danger of that. But I'll tell you what, there's a danger of that even as adults, right? The New Testament covers this quite a bit. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. No, we shouldn't see grace as some excuse to go do whatever it is we want. We need, to, we need to make sure that we communicate that to our children, that when they are forgiven, this is not an excuse to go do it again. But I'm telling you what, it is a whole lot easier to admit faults when you know there is a loving person on the other end who is willing to forgive. And that's our God. Grace and forgiveness ought to be a motivator to do what is right. Again, think of our relationship with our kids 
as they ought to reflect the gospel in some way. Is grace and forgiveness a part of the gospel? Absolutely. It's one of the most integral parts of the gospel, that we can have grace and forgiveness through our God. And finally, our Heavenly Father is one who gives good gifts. Our Heavenly Father is one who is seeking to give His children good gifts. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11. And as Jesus compares uh, the Father to earthly fathers, Jesus says that the Father above gives good gifts to, our ch uh, to His children that exceed that of, of the earthly fathers. Well, what gifts does God give us? Well, certainly there's many wonderful gifts that He gives us, but I'll tell you what, some of the good gifts certainly don't feel good. Birds have nests. Foxes have holes. What does Jesus have? He didn't have anywhere to be, and yet He's still calling people to follow Him. There's going to be difficulties when it comes to these good gifts that God has given us. We must understand that being a Christian, that there are many difficult things and unpleasant moments that come with serving Him. So as parents, as we try to follow the example of God our Father, there are going to be things that we do for our kids that are not going to seem pleasant to them. Tears are a part of it. But I want to bring your mind back to Hebrews 12 and verse 11, where it, where it talks about how there are things that uh, discipline seems unjoyful for the moment. But you know what it's producing? Do you know why we have our kids go through these unjoyful things? Well, it's to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what we're trying to produce in our kids. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Are we communicating that in a, in a, in a mode of peace? Are we showing them peace? Are we trying to create that even when it causes discomfort, uh, discomfort in them? That's how what the best good gift that we can give our children is what the person is actually seeking in Matthew chapter 6. You notice Matthew or 7, excuse me. Matthew 7 and verse 11, it's in the context of, uh, context of ask, seek, and knock. Well, what is that person asking and seeking and knocking for? Well, if you go back up to chapter 6 and verse 33, it says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The good gift that God has given us is, is his kingdom and his righteousness. The best good gift we can give to our children is the gospel. And not only does that mean that we are sharing the gospel with our children, like, like we are telling them Bible stories, we're, we're reading the Bible with them, we're, we're asking them thought-provoking, biblically-based questions, but we are demonstrating the gospel in the way that we interact with them and in the way that we treat them. That we are showing them compassion, kindness, forbearance, and of course, love. Well, in a practical way, in a practical way, I would like all of us, um, but especially fathers, uh, to choose one or two of these actions. Um, to choose one or two of the actions of the Heavenly Father uh, to try and work on this week. Which of these five actions of God do you need work on? For me personally, I know that I need, uh, I need to be more observant. I need to see better. I need to see my children recognize their likes and dislikes and pay attention to them so that I can give them the, the attention that they need, the particular attention that each child needs. I have a tendency to have that, that tunnel vision uh, become so hyper-focused on things that, that I'm doing to the point where I, I neglect to accurately observe and take note of my children. But I believe that the, the more active we are in, in evaluating ourselves, the, the better parents we will become. Because I'll tell you what, bad behavior in a child 
is certainly in need of correction. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that your child is bad, but they're developing. And on the flip side, failures on the part of a parent need correcting. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are bad at parenting, but we are developing, and we are trying to grow in that. And to go along with that, I wish, there was, I wish there was better discussion among parents on these things, that we would each share insights on one another. Uh, it, it seems as though we're, we're very afraid to talk about how things, everything's going perfectly, so we go to the complete opposite end where we just, we just talk about how terrible our children are. We can't have that. What we need is constructive discussions where we can all improve in this manner. I want to end uh, where, where I ended last week uh, when we talked about how being married and being uh, single, and in each case we're going to do it for the, for the, uh, the, to please the Father. Well, I believe Colossians 3 and verse 17 is pretty fitting for us as parents as well. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Children and parents alike must be seeking to serve God within their roles, all the while uh, giving thanks to God for the good gifts that He provides. If you are not a Christian, now is the time. Uh, I would like to provide an invitation that is from God Himself. He wants everyone in here to be a Christian, to be a follower of Him. Not just believe, but commit to Him, as Bob talked about this morning. To be ones who are willing to dedicate their lives to Him. And to know that you are committing your life to one who sees you, to one who rewards you, to one who knows you, to one who forgives you, and the one who has given you the best gift that can be given, and that is the gift of salvation. If you need, are in need of that invitation, please come up now while we stand and while we sing. I will